Hello everyone, and welcome to this special episode of From Survivor to Thriver. Uh, as it's a little out of character for us and a little bit different, um, this part's going to sound a little different because this is your co-host Mark Fernandes, and I'm just going to shoot it straight across the creek to my co-host Eric DeRosa. Eric, how are we today? Good morning. You know, one of the things I love about having our own podcast is we can do what we want when we want and yeah we that's because we're grown-ups remember we're, we're grown-ups grown so we can do what we yes want. yes it took me 50 years to realize i could do it what i wanted and not have to do what other people wanted me to do so yeah we could do these special episodes and this one this one's going to be really fun i'm really excited uh and after this i'm going to go out and ride it, it i think it rained here last night i woke up this morning and it was it was pretty wet, so I'm going to continue riding here in the, the Colorado Rocky uh, rainforest. As it it's... feels a little muggy for Colorado this morning. I'm not I know, <laughs> I know, I know. How are you? I know you had a fun day yesterday seeing your brother and your nephew. Yeah, and... I got to hang out with my, and I met my new nephew, uh, who's only seven months old, which was a blast, and he's adorable, and it's crazy how much personality they've already formed, even at that. Like, he's... Definitely has a little bit of uh, my brother's, like, searching. Uh, like, he just stares at you like, oh, I'm going to figure you out right now. And my brother definitely has that kind of brain. So it was cool to see. And um, a little bit more time with my mom and my niece. Four hours in the car getting down to Denver. Um, and they both got on flights, delayed, but got where they were going safely in a single day, which today is sort of an achievement by airline standards. So yeah, uh, that's impressive. Thanks to that. We got them and both coasts. You know, I sent my niece back East and my mom further West. So, um, it's been great. I loved having them. Um, I, it, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's what relationships about. And I know we're, we're going to start talking about that here in just a minute. So, but, yes. uh, it's been, I'm sure I'll have some fodder in there from the past week. Excellent. Well, we have a special guest for our special episode, so let's find out who it is. The joining us today is Dr. Sherry Walling. She is a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. Her company, Zen Founder, helps entrepreneurs and leaders navigate transition, rapid growth, loss, conflict, or any manner of complex human experience. She hosts the Zen Founder podcast, which has been called a, and I quote, must listen by both Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine and has been downloaded more than 1 million times. She is also the host of Mind Curious, a podcast exploring innovations in mental health care via psychedelics. Mark will be very interested in that. Her best-selling book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, I love it, combines the insight and warmth of a therapist with the truth-telling mirth of someone who has been there. Her soon-to-be-released new book, Touching Two Worlds, which comes out on Tuesday, July 26th, explores new strategies for finding wholeness in the aftermath of loss. She and her husband, guitarist Rob, reside in Minneapolis, where they spend their time driving their children to music lessons. She has also been known to occasionally perform as a circus aerialist. Take note, Mark. With that, let's welcome in Dr. Sherry. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode. 
It's a special episode <laughs> on a special day. Hey, you did a good job getting through my bio. I like to throw in words like mirth to see if like, it really fucks people up. Well, is that, is that like the thing where like, I think it was Vince Neil back in the day for his contract writer. He would always put like only green M&Ms like in the middle of it just to make sure they read all the way through. And you're like, do you know what mirth means? I mean, you know, it's one syllable, but that's some college word shit right there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> It's more like, did you, did you read it ahead of time? Or were you reading it cold? And <laughs> yes. Yes. Anyway, you no. did great. You did great, Eric. He, he definitely, oh, he, he definitely rehearsed. He definitely rehearsed. Yeah, um, no, I always rehearsed and I saw psychedelic. <laughs> so I know Mark is going to be excited about that. You know, it's funny you say that because that, that actually isn't what struck me because believe it or not, this fat ass has done circus aerials as well. Oh, um, back in the day as a performer, um, a friend of mine, and, and I don't think he listens, but I'll give him a shout out. Tony Schwartzman, um, uh, directed and created a new play called The Hunger Dreams that we premiered in New York and then traveled up to Boston to do. And he created a, a single loop system. So you actually tied, we used uh, fabric to tie in a single foot. And then we actually were able to grab the other side of the single loop system with our hand. And we were able to pull ourselves up in, and then you could twist, turn, go all the way to the ceiling, all the way down, but it was all self-supported, um, which was really cool. And he spent some time developing that and then it became a big part of the show. What type of circus aerials did you do? Ooh, that sounds super fun. So I uh, work with fabric. So there's silks, aerial silks, which are open on the bottom. And then there's an aerial hammock sling, which is closed on the bottom, which, you know, has a little bit more of a dancey flourish. I also do flying trapeze. Um, and I dabble a little bit in the lira, which is the metal hoop that uh, Ariels use. Very cool. And so the the silks was actually his sort of inspiration of the tie. So we actually yeah, used essentially like. a silk to go around the foot. And then some of us use just hand on rope. Some of us like the loop in the rope. Um, and so I actually got good at being able to make a loop midstream. So I would grab the rope and make a loop um, so I could go at different heights. Everyone else was like half my size. So they're like, oh, I can just go up the rope. And I'm like, no, I need something to hold on. This is big. Something to grip. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we the only grip. aerials, the only aerials I do, and it's, uh, I've had a couple in the last week, which is kind of surprising. Some by mistake. Is when I, yes, is when I'm riding very fast down some very technical mountain bike terrain and I come off the bike and I'm in the air and then I land on sharp objects rocks um yeah so still got some of the <laughs> some of the scars and bruises but that's my only aerial act your experience with flight there my is. experience with flight yes yes <laughs> jews can said. fly as, as i like to say jews can fly uh <laughs> but the landing so it's all about the to, landing i have to tell you about this circus stuff i um my publisher with this new book thought i was crazy because i was like guys guys i'm gonna make a circus show I'm going to make an original circus show to launch the book and we're going to do it. It's going to be great. And they were like, A, you're crazy. Nobody does that. B, you realize that your book is about death, don't you? So I'm not sure how you're going to create a circus show all about death. So I, uh, I had a lot of pushback for my grand <laughs> idea, but it was actually a very cool show. I think it's, oh, so you did do the show because I was going to say. It. Of course yeah, I did it. Your book isn't technically about grief because the title itself lends itself to this idea of aerials, right? Between two worlds. Yeah. These yeah. people, no imagination. I'm glad you, they didn't, you went They ahead. didn't have the image. <laughs> yeah, no, no. No. I, had, I fought it out. I fought the good fights. I'm and the show was did. amazing. Oh, my God. Well, it, do, it, are there any videos of it that we can link to and get people to see? Yeah. Yep, awesome. yep, I'll send, we'll you, I'll sure send you some links. And before so, I forget, you said yeah. there was a story that you wanted to say at the beginning of the show when we were talking about 
I'll, I'll oh, we were talking that. about whether or not we're allowed to swear on yes. the show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, kitchen table conversations. Yes. And I, I was like, well, I don't know how you run your kitchen table. Like some people, you know, don't, don't swear in front of their children or whatever. So um, last night I had the first reading of the book. I went to the local bookstore, read some chapters or some essays from the book and my children were there, which was super cool actually for them to see me in this role. But my book has um, some swearing in it. Like, not a ton, but some well-placed F-bombs, which are appropriate to the situation. And so I was like, okay, children, let's at least pretend that you are surprised when you hear your mom say fuck over and over. Uh, and they <laughs> did a job. They did a good job, like playing along. They were like, yeah, totally like, ah. I oh can't believe mom just said that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm essentially feral. So <laughs> you can only imagine what my kitchen table conversations go like. And they usually start with somebody making a statement and me in some way being like, well, what the fuck does that mean? So we're going to start there because I, unfortunately, um, you know, as a middle-aged dude have had a ton of grief in my life and starting at a very early age, I was lucky enough and blessed enough to have most of my grandparents alive as a kid. I had great grandparents even. And so unfortunately my late adolescence to teenage years, as they got into their eighties and nineties, I got really good at going to funerals. Um, yeah. and so, and unfortunately, recently, you know, a little over four years ago, um, I lost my dad. Um, and I've shared parts of it, not all of it, but that grief and that, you know, sort of becoming the dude in the family uh, sent me into some anxiety, depression and revisiting things uh, from my childhood. I hadn't really sorted out. I thought I had. Um, or maybe I had sorted them out enough, I guess would be a good yeah. statement. And then I ended up back in therapy. So it is something that is very close to me, very important to my heart. And you know, just revisiting something you said, you know, uh, during our pre-call is you may not need this book yet, but maybe you should read it before you need it. So I'd love to hear what brought you to, to needing or feeling the need to, to write this book. Yeah. So similar to you, I was kind of going through my life, building business, raising kids, like doing a good, doing a good job. And I had a series of these phone calls, the phone call moments that, um, you and some of your listeners will probably be familiar with. The first phone call was that my dad was diagnosed with stage four metastatic esophageal cancer, which is one of the nasty ones. Um, so he lived 18 months from diagnosis to when he passed on. And then the next phone call came a couple of days later, which was to tell me that my brother, who was in his early thirties at that time, had done a really deep dive into his addiction to alcohol and his experience of depression. And so he went through this kind of unfolding mental health crisis right alongside my dad's illness. And we lost him to suicide six months after we lost my dad. So I'm kind of in the middle of my life and the brakes are put on everything, right? Like suddenly my whole life is about being present for these people who I love, who are unraveling. And then it's about this process of kind of preparing, at least in my dad's case, to say goodbye to him. And then this new experience of grief. And of course I lost other people and I, you know, I'm a psychologist. Like I spent a lot of time talking to people about grief and trauma and hard experiences, but there were some things that I didn't really realize until I experienced it. And so I wanted to write about it almost as like, I'm leaving notes for like my friends who are going to come behind me to be like, okay, you're not here yet, but you're going to be here. So let me just give you a few heads up so that you can sort of have a sense of what to expect. I just had this image of like post-it notes, like breadcrumbs, like here you are on the road to grief, <laughs> but what, and 
we're we're dead set against actually giving away too much of the book because people should just get the book. That's the whole point. Um, <laughs> but I would love to hear like what were one of those moments where here you are probably with the thirty thousand foot view as the psychologist looking at yourself and therapist and then but you're having the experience right it's one of those things where it doesn't matter how much you know about this the emotion all those things happen and then we still have to employ our coping mechanisms or not right sometimes we can't even do that and i would just love to hear you talk about how that showed up for you i think one of the most raw moments was after the loss of my brother to suicide. That's, I mean, that's a, that's its own grief journey. There's some extra layers there and it's a very stigmatized kind of death. So people don't know how to talk about it. People don't know how to ask about it. It's sort of like Voldemort, like he who shall not be named. Like it's mm -hmm. just too complicated, but I did have to do my own wrestling with responsibility, blame, guilt, like all of that even though I, I kind of knew from that 30,000 foot, like psychologist view, like it's not your fault. Like this was his story, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I had to go through it. And I had to really sit with like that one time that I got really mad at him because of this thing that he did that hurt me. And I just let him know. I was like, fuck you. Don't do that. You know, I, I had to go back through and take inventory of all of these moments and go through in some cases, this process of like forgiving myself for not being a perfect sister. And then in other cases, um, just honoring that I did love him and I loved him well. And so I had to like really recast the story for myself, even though I'm a psychologist and I know it's not my fault. I had to contend with the ways that I felt like it was my fault. Well, and what I love about you telling that story and then saying, you know, I'm a psychologist, right? So, so, and one of the stigmas we really try to shatter on this show is this idea that whether you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist or, or anybody who's a professional in that field, that you also don't have the same human experiences as everybody else does. And I think that's such a big myth that the person I'm sitting across, uh, you know, Sherry's listening to me, but she doesn't really know what I'm going through. She can't possibly, she's, she was trained in this. And so uh, just hearing you talk about, you know, your brother and the book and uh it, it really brings that humanistic approach to this whole idea of we're all in this together yeah there, i mean i would not want to work with a mental health professional or any other kind of professional for that matter who wasn't in touch with their own humanity and you know this book is an uncomfortable book to put out there because it, it's it's pretty intimate like there's a lot of my heart and soul on I was going to say, it's you. I mean, just even, me. hearing, even hearing you just talk about wrestling with that situation with your brother, first off, like, I can, I can feel your heart. You know, here we are yeah. thousands of miles apart talking through this box. But the sense for me, and this is, I'm going to make a personal statement and then ask a question. The hardest thing for me was reconciling that understanding of grief, right? And the stages of grief and pushing through it and then balancing the responsibilities I had to the people left behind, making sure you honor the people who've left, right? And so for me, that was one of the hardest things and I just never gave myself enough time or bandwidth at the time to grieve myself. I, I went into fixer solution mode, like take care of this, there's things to fix, there's this, this. And then all of a sudden, all of that was done. And there I was, and I was like, wait, why why am I sad all the time? Everything's yeah. fine, we got this all you know, settled. And so 
um, what were what were some of the ways that you saw yourself as you came through that you had those like milestone moments of like, oh, see there, there, there I gave myself time to sit in that grief and rectify the feelings or thoughts I had for my father. And then six months later, in a completely, I mean, it is, I mean, moving from the idea of a natural death from a sickness that you knew was there versus, um, you know, an addiction and mental health journey that ends in suicide. Those are two completely different things. But mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is the person's still gone. So you have to mm -hmm. find ways to go through essentially those same steps and processes, right? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that was clear to me was that there aren't really steps. Like I'm not progressing from one point to another point where I'm on the other side of this. I'm, I feel more like I'm just integrating these experiences into me, which is why I like that. Like the, the, the trail of post-it notes or the, the trail of bread comes through the forest kind of model because I'm moving through something, but not because there's a destination on the other side where it's like, okay, I'm done with that. But it's, I'm learning to become this new version of being a human who has been intimately acquainted with death, who has no loss. So I, I think the permission to not feel like, oh, I have to get through this so I can get onto something else was a really like nice shift in my own mind that's been really helpful and really shaped the way that I think about grief. Well, and how did you do that? Because I, and honestly, I use the word steps, but that's not really it. Cause even me, I think of it as stages. Like, I feel like it's sort of circular. I revisit them. Uh, the anger still shows up sometimes and yeah. you know, the sadness and stuff. So um, I, I absolutely love and appreciate what you said, because it is truly things you go through stages, you know, it isn't like, okay, check mark, I'm through that. But where, where did you find that you, could or how did you find that you could give yourself permission to be like this is happening whether i wanted to or not i have to just be here with it yeah i i called the book touching two worlds because for me it it helps me get a picture of what it feels like to move back and forth between the life of grief and sadness and loss and like all that shit and then also be someone who is in living equally in a world of like joy. So I, I kind of feel like a time traveler or like maybe it, I'm going through the metaverse, but I know <laughs> that like I can be both at once. And that was so clear to me in this journey because I, you know, I have young kids and I would sit with my children and just feel this, like their, their aliveness and my aliveness holding them as their mother. And it just was so clear, like this is life beginning. And then I would go an hour later and sit with my brother in the hospital and be like, this is a life that's shutting down. And so to, it helped me because I had to move quickly through those emotion states and be in this like weird warped two world place at one time, um, which I just got more comfortable there and started to feel like, hey, it's like this all the time. Like, this is reality. Like that we're moving in these different phases at once. Well, and I think the reality too of it is it's, it's often very difficult to be able to feel one emotion without feeling the other. So yeah. it's really hard to understand what true joy is unless you've experienced real grief and vice versa. And it's something that I'm learning uh, to, to work with on my own journey rather mm -hmm. than just kind of living at a baseline and feeling that you know this this baseline for me is is good enough right yeah. and and I don't want to get 
too, too sad and too in it. But I also want to be careful not to get like too excited because maybe I'll be let down. Um, and so that's been a big piece of my own personal journey as well. And I like how you've set the book up in that way of kind of, you know, you're in between those two worlds and bouncing back and forth. And it's, it's perfectly okay to like be in this, be in the middle and then touch the two sides when necessary. Yeah. It's kind of like light and shadow. But I think for me, it's so powerful because I I think that a lot of people feel afraid that they're going to get stuck in the grief. Like if you really let yourself go there and feel how horrible it is to have loved someone and then not be able to touch them or hold them or just talk to them again. Like if you really give yourself over to that, I've, you know, lots of people have told me like, I feel like if I open the dam, like everything's just going to break and there's not going to be a way back for me. Like I will get stuck in that trauma or grief or sadness or depression or whatever. And I really found the opposite to be true. It's when I let myself enter those dark, really dark places that I could also like catapult over, over to the light. Right. Like, I, sound, I sound a little bit bipolar. That's not what I mean, but it is the ability to like shift to the edges. It makes mm -hmm. perfect sense. And, and I'm going to share even a known personal story. My wife and I just, um, just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary mm -hmm. in a place that we loved and my dad loved. And I had one of those very moments at the same time. I didn't even have to go between the house and the hospital. I was standing on the beach. We're having a party to celebrate this. And I just had this thought of like how joyous and happy my dad would be to be there. Yeah. And in the same moment, I was so sad to the point of tears that he wasn't. And then in the next moment, I was like, but we're still having it with or without him in body. I'm thinking of him. He's here. Right. And so and literally, you know, you want to talk about bipolar. I've got the ping pong ball going back like my heart is crushed. I miss him so much. He's here. Part of the reason why I have this joy and can feel this joy is because he has shared it, will share it, does share it. You know, and but in my mind, my crazy brain is doing both of those things to the point where one of my friends walks over, sees me standing at the end of the beach, puts their hand on my shoulder and is like, you good? And I'm like, um, yeah, yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. good, yeah. I'm good. And all the like, things right now. Just... Yeah, I got all yep. the things, all the feels. And literally, luckily, they know me well enough. And they looked right at me and went, you miss your dad. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, but that's a good thing too, right? And I'm like, well, shit, man, that's, that's where it gets weird in my head. Because it is, right? Like to have had that love and that joy and to remember it in those moments is joyous. While... Even now, you can see my eyes starting to like well up a bit because I'm like, but he's not fucking here. Yeah. It's all smushed together, right? The love and the longing and grief doesn't happen unless there's love. And so you don't get to separate them. Which is why I, I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. Honestly, thank you. And, and, I'm and not I mean sorry, that, but yeah. yeah, sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not Another sorry. Another thing we say a lot on the show. I'm but, sorry, you're uncomfortable, Mark. <laughs> and, and actually, on your own podcast. On my own podcast. And honestly, I'm not even uncomfortable. It's like, well, how do I, how do I touch both those worlds in a way that like is enriching, feels good, doesn't affect everyone around me in such a negative way or myself, and. And I do think it is remembering exactly what you just said of like, no, 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 that, that is the joy. The joy has to be there. And it wouldn't be there without the love, without the grief, without the sadness. Like it doesn't, you don't get to just have one because you wouldn't know. 
you just wouldn't know. And Eric, your point about that idea of baseline, just to be clear, he's not suggesting in any way, shape or form that that's where <laughs> no. we should stay. You got to go high. You got to go low. Yeah. Even if you feel like Sherry and I do like crazy bipolar people talking <laughs> like 17 different voices at once. Guess what? Like that's how it works. But what I love about your story, Mark, and I've I've stood on that beach with you, so I know where you were. Mm-hmm. I've spent, uh, I was lucky enough to spend time with your dad alone and with you and your dad. So, um, but you, there's so much growth in your story and knowing you as a person, I think what was so different about that experience from you is not pushing it away, right? So mm-hmm. allowing it to come, and accepting both sides of it without trying to push away like the sad parts of it and only try to stand there um, and force yourself to remember the good parts. So kudos to you um, for, you know, not only sharing that with all of us, but, uh, you know, it's a it's a huge step in your own personal journey. Well, and I'll be honest, and and thank you, and I'll be honest, and I'm sure I'm not this a is... professional, by the way. No, 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 but Sherry as a is. Reminder, I am. You Sherry seem is. fine. <laughs> I seem fine. Everything's fine. But and, and I'm just going. I'm just going to slightly adjust something you said because not only did I give my, but I gave myself a different per- permission to feel the joy as well, right? So without trying to suppress the sadness, and I'm watching Sherry nod, so I'm guessing this is something she has felt or thought about or has led her clients towards is you will never feel that full joy of that moment if you don't always also allow yourself to feel that sadness, to feel the loss, to feel the missing, because because they're, they're, you know, it's this weird paradox, right? Like they, the further out they both go, the more feeling or truth there probably is in those ends. And I'm not saying everything has to feel that way, right? Like we don't have like, woo, I made, you know, an English muffin for breakfast. It's time to like, you know, set off the fireworks and have the party. But you know, when you're, when you're in grief and you're feeling that true miss of that person, not there in body, there's, it, you know, it's heartbreaking, but then in that same moment, if you can reflect on why you miss them so much and how much joy and love they brought into your life, like, well, now we're getting somewhere. And both of those edges, both grief and joy require a sense of letting go, right? You have to like open yourself up to the not being in control of it, which is super uncomfortable and why baseline looks really attractive. And I just want to reiterate, I'm not saying that we live in the ends of the spectrum. That would be really exhausting. And exhausting for us and for everybody around us, but to be able to let ourselves release into some of these feelings is, is really magical. I mean, it's, again, it's the high highs and the low lows, but they're worth letting ourselves travel to sometimes for a period, because that's, that's where some of the like really, really juicy parts of our humanness live. And speaking of allowing ourselves to go into the high highs. <laughs> oh, is this a the, transition to a drug conversation? And some of the low lows. <laughs> nice, Eric. Um, thank you. Thank speaking you. of high. Speaking of high highs. Um, no, and, and- Only water and coffee was, so far for me today, if anybody's right. wondering. Which is good. Uh, but no, just, just listening to you, Sherry, uh, and I think Mark will agree. You remind me so much of a ther- the therapist that Mark and I share here in Colorado, uh, Kathleen, because Kathleen, uh, in addition to being an amazing therapist is also very open uh, and she talks with us 
uh, during our sessions about her own, right, her own journey. And, mm -hmm. um, but she's also very, very open and um, willing to explore all sorts of treatment modalities. And, mm -hmm. and I know for her, um, she started reading and doing a lot of research on the use of all types of, you know, psychedelics and um, and so I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, how, how and when you sort of made, um, made that investigation and why you think that it is an important part for some people to be able to both touch into the grief, but then be able to figure out how to move into the joy. Yeah. So I, I came to, um, an awareness of psychedelics in the nerdiest way possible, which is to start reading research studies. <laughs> um, yeah. I, white papers. Woo! That's how I got into it too. I, I know. Kind of makes right. it tingle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I did a postdoctoral fellowship at the national center for PTSD, uh, which is this partnership between universities and the government, believe it or not, to help really with the veterans mental health crisis following Vietnam. So there are all of these like centers of excellence around the country that are investigating different aspects of God, how do we like undo the trauma of war and help people go on and live well. And the VA is one of the places that had early curiosity specifically around the use of MDMA to treat PTSD. And so that's, that was kind of my, <laughs> my onboarding into the story was to think, oh my gosh, we could potentially use a medication that helps calm the activation of the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain so that people can approach some of their own personal history without feeling so very afraid. Um, so that sounds on paper, like a great plan. Um, of course there's lots of complexities with legalization and a lot of this research was shut down during kind of the war on drugs and blah, 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 but it stayed with me as something that I was really curious about. And of course there's been this kind of renewed interest in psychedelics really in the, the upper echelon of mental health care. So at this point, there are at least 80 centers of excellence related to psychedelics research or clinical care across the medical schools in the United States, places like Harvard, Johns Hopkins, UC San Francisco, Yale, like the places you want to go for your health care. Um, so I have stayed very curious about this. I've trained with MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is doing a lot of the research to try to support getting psychedelics FDA approved as, um, you know, like a legit clinical intervention. But of course, some of this stuff still happens in the underground or there are other places where it's legal and where you can go for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy as a way to help heal some of these, these injuries. So yeah, I could, I could talk about this like a long time. So you better jump in and ask me a question. Otherwise I'm going to go into like was, total professor. I know, I know Mark has, Mark has done his own white paper research. Um. You, you don't have to say it like that. It's okay. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I actually. I am from... who I am. Don't make fun of me. I'm like a nerdy girl in high school. So here's the funny part is I ended up at the white papers afterwards. So my, no, and I'll be honest, like we, we've had, we've had guests on who, um, have used psilocybin. Uh, we've had somebody who's gone down to ayahuasca, South, yeah. ayahuasca, ayahuasca and South Central yeah. America. And my entry into it was slightly academic, believe it or not. I was in school in Boston and I got really interested in the work of Carlos Castaneda. 
So I was reading his books, uh, especially his idea of, and I was an artist at the time. So thinking about the mm -hmm. idea of like the warrior spirit and, and mm -hmm. how to do it. And um, uh, anybody who's interested or intrigued by that work, you know, Castaneda spent time with the Yaqui Indians and um, experiencing both uh, the use of um, mescaline uh, in its more natural form and um, peyote. And so for me, the thing that I always find interesting, and we'll talk about this a bit and then we can get back to the book, it is, and, and, and there are probably some relationships because this idea of touching two worlds, a lot of times using something like MDMA, and just if you guys don't know, uh, the street drug names for that would be Molly <laughs> or Ecstasy. Um, and, and, and <laughs> I just- I'm not people, even gonna no, no, no. attempt the scientific name for it. It's like it's, 27 it's characters long. It is, yeah. and that's why everyone says MDMA. <laughs> and if you want a really good description of it, go back and listen to Mark Wilkinson's episode. Yes. Uh, and so uh, for those, just a quick reminder, Mark was the house resident DJ at the Ministry of Sound in London, who is a guest on our show. Uh, and so he can, he, he kind of walks through his own experience with X, uh, and you know MDMA uh, and and spinning records uh, around the world. Episode uh, twenty four seven. Okay, Mark just looked episode it up. Episode twenty four. And so I think and and this and this may relate to the book. So if it does, we'll go there. If not, we'll build a bridge a little bit later. But this idea of touching two worlds is a lot of times the use of these psychotropic substances actually allows us the understanding that there is more to it, right? Like we yeah. our thoughts, feelings, the things we're seeing, even right. And so. I'm guessing, because I don't know a ton of your exact work, but I have read a lot about the PTSD work that they were doing. It, you know, in talking about the amygdala and this fight or flight response, it's actually to allow that one step, you know, we talk a lot about reaction versus response, that one step of pause of like, is this real? Is this happening? Is there context to it? And I, I just, from my own perspective and my own journey, there's nothing more powerful than being able to like, look at your brain that way and be like, is it helping me? Or is it getting in the way right now? What's going on here? And I'm guessing that's part of that. And I wonder sometimes in this idea of touching two worlds between grief and joy and standing there, you know, um, and it, and it's such a beautiful metaphor because, you know, depending on what you think of spirituality, you're thinking about the living world versus, versus the gone world. And, you know, I just, I, I don't, I understand it'll take time to understand and appreciate and approve these things, but people's just rank resistance to it. I don't understand because it makes so much sense to me. People who get it, get it. Like my, my own mother, who is a lifelong evangelical Christian does not drink alcohol. There was no swearing at our dinner table, you know, just, but she's heard me talk about this and has softened to it. And I actually do write about, um, an episode of my own MDMA supported psychotherapy in the book. So it's not a book about psychedelics. Maybe my next book will be, but, um, I had an experience where I was able to go out of the country and, and sit with a physician who was able to, you know, do this above board and all the things. Um, but I returned in, in my MDMA journey, returned back to the moment of my father's death and returned very much to the, to the real memory as it occurred. But in my MDMA story, I was sort of hovering above the scene and watching myself lay in bed next to my dad as he took his last few breaths. When I was in that moment in real life, I was very attuned to making sure that my dad was as comfortable as he could be. I was holding my mom's hand. I was looking at my brothers. Like I'm the oldest daughter and I'm a doctor. So my job for forever has been to take care of and attend to the people around me. 
And I was absolutely in my ultimate power of that in that moment. But in the MDMA, I kind of hovered over the scene and I saw myself as, as a daughter losing her daddy and just really honed in and looked at that girl. I'm in my forties, but at that girl and had such tender compassion for her and wanted to take care of her and just scoop her up and hold her. And it, you know, it is, it is that sense of bending time and place because that, that was real. And I really needed to grieve like that and to understand my grief in that way instead of, or in addition to the function of I'm going to help, I'm going to do the paperwork. I get the plane tickets, all that stuff. So the MDMA deepened and softened my way of experiencing it. And I love that even in your telling of that, we heard you deepen and soften it when you shifted from the word instead and went to in addition to, because I think, I think that's one of the places we get caught and we allow our brain to get in our own way. It's like, no, you are a doctor and a daughter. You didn't have to be a doctor instead of a daughter then. And you didn't have to be a daughter instead of a doctor. Granted it's confusing and difficult and challenging to try to hold space for all those things at once. And probably you couldn't, but you had to at some point, even if you couldn't do it at that point, right? And I think for me and my own grief journey, and it's so affirming, so thank you uh, Mm -hmm. to hear that. It's so affirming to me because I beat myself up about it. I'm like, why didn't I grieve at the time? Why didn't I do this? And it's like, it's okay. Like the reality is here you are and it doesn't matter, right? I, I, There's no schedule. You're not late. Hey, hey. (laughs) On time, let's get the shit done, you know? And and honestly, you know, thinking about the title of your first book and, and having heard a little bit about the different work you've done, I mean, how hard is it for, you know, us achievers, here we are, you know, doctors like, well, maybe, maybe the little girl laying in bed, you know, present for the death of her daddy needs that time. And you're like, well, no, I've got, I've got deadlines. I've got little kids to raise. Like, I, you know, and so I guess for me, that moment of empathy and compassion, you finally could have for yourself, you know, we have to give ourselves permission for that time. Yeah. And it, I think it would have happened. I think it would have been harder without the ability to be in a safe, protected place and use a medicine that just allowed my brain to see in a different way. And so I, I am an advocate and a believer in the power of these medicines. I think there's a lot of bullshit that can happen and they'll probably get abused and misused and we'll probably be fighting about it in court for a long time, but they're powerful. And that means they're powerful for good and they're also powerful for bad. But I have been really grateful to have the exposure and the experience during this phase of my life, because I, I do think it's what allows me to like to write the book and to talk about it openly because I... I feel the multidimensionality of my story and I'm comfortable in it. Um, and that's important. Also, I just want to point out that a minute ago, my earbud fell out and went down my shirt and I got it out super smoothly. I don't even know if you noticed, but we didn't notice. Woo! I, I, I did, but it was so smooth. I decided I, I would just let it nope. fly. Podcast win. I know we're having this really serious moment. I'm like, is it going to be weird if I'm like fishing down my shirt for my earbud? No, I didn't. I you, didn't. you were so slick about it. I Well, and the best part was I didn't realize it was the earbud until it came back up. 
So I saw you. I was like, oh, did she drop something? Or I, I'll be honest. My wife is like a master of like adjusting her bra or like something under her shirt without anyone noticing. So I was like, maybe there's something like that going on. And I was like, I'm just going to let that be. I'm just going to let it ride. And then all of a sudden you were like, you were like, dink, boom. And it was in you. I was like, oh, she that was awesome. But it was like, <laughs> professional. It was almost like, yeah, I was just saying Whoa. it's the perfect like psychologist trick, right? Like you had us so into your story <laughs> and we were so focused that it's almost like a magician. Like we didn't actually see the trick take place. <laughs> well, Woo. the thing that I think is funny, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but the thing that I find funny is often these things, right? MDMA was originally supposedly developed in, I think, 1911 or 1912 by a German pharmaceutical company. Uh, LSD, lysergic acid, was, you know, developed at multiple different times, they think, by a few different things. And they all had medical or, unfortunately, sometimes military thought processes behind them of what they were trying to do, right? And, mm -hmm. and develop. And then all of a sudden, you know, they end up sort of being used and abused from a recreational standpoint. And then there are people like you and doctors going, actually, you guys were on to something. Like, we could use this stuff. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, that's a street drug now. <laughs> You're right. like, whoa, time out, guys. Like, what are we doing? That'll here? make you think you can fly and jump off a building. Right. Yeah, yes. I don't know, man. That's, yes. you know, also, it takes like, one what... asshole to ruin a party. I know, right? <laughs> Why'd you go and do that? Yeah, no. It'll be interesting to see what develops. I feel like there's a turn of tide among people who hold a lot of power in the world. Maybe not authority, maybe not government, but mm -hmm. I think the entrepreneurs are pretty on board. Again, doesn't mean that everything that is going down in Silicon Valley is a good plan, but um, I, it will be really surprising to me if there's another like huge lockdown. I think there's there's quite a tide of research and of medicalized support and of clarity for what they could potentially offer that hopefully they're, they're, they'll be around for a bit. Well, and I think you're right too. I think enough people have decided that the war on drugs isn't working, right? So right. You know, if you look at legalization of marijuana and, and those different things, and of course, for the people who are fully on board on that, in my opinion, the wrong side of this argument, they're like, see, it's a gateway to all these other things. And it's like, wait, people are actually talking about how to use these substances from a medical standpoint. And uh, by the way, alcohol still kills more than everybody. So just Thank saying, you. you know, and, and yeah. by the way, I also love whiskey. I'm not saying we should make that one illegal either, but I, I find, I hope you're right. And I think you are because more and more people are not interested in the name the stigma, the peace behind it. It's like, wait, does this work? Can this help people? Right. Let's roll, you know? And and we, we need a little bit more of that in the world right now. I also think it's a much more honest approach to how mental health actually happens, right? We've we bought into Descartes' body-soul dualism and this idea that, oh, it's in your head. But if you have like gastrointestinal distress, oh, that's in your belly, that's in your body, that's legit, we'll give you medicine for that. So this sort of segmentation of us into very different parts, you go to one doctor for your lungs and one doctor for your feet and one doctor for your ears, it, it's, I mean, you know, I'm glad they're specialists, but we're so disintegrated. And so to have a system of therapy that is, it's very human, it's very relational. relational. So when we talk about psychedelic assisted therapy, we are talking about therapy. There's talking, there's diving in, there's question asking, there's a human there supporting you, guiding you, playing music for you. 
And then we're also talking about this biochemical intervention. And so it is a very holistic mind, body, spirit, in many cases, um, package that I think really just makes sense to me in how we think about what heals people and the, the parts of us that need to be involved for healing to take place. And it gets back to the whole stigmatization of mental health, because mm. even though the other types of medicines and medical treatments may be segmented, people are not afraid to talk about it. All right. Mark just, you know, talked a few episodes ago. He had his colonoscopy. Uh, Thank God for I, fentanyl, right? That's where you want. That's where you want an opioid. Dude, that's right. But that's the problem right. is, is they don't give you anything to deal with. Well, no, you're right. But I'm just saying the problem is they don't give yeah. you anything to deal with when you're drinking that garbage and peeing out of your butthole. <laughs> like, like, fine, you knock me out and you stick the tube in my butt. But what about the last yeah. 30 hours of absolute hell, by the way? <laughs> that's the worst part. It's the yeah. worst part. Like, you wake yeah. up and you're like, oh, whatever, I've been violated. But am I ever going to poop something solid again, you <laughs> assholes? <laughs> <laughs> That's when you need your, you're like yeah. MDMA or something. Yeah, you're See, like, okay. No, no, no stigma on it. that, right? No, no, no stigma on that. You're right. But another friend of mine. We interrupted you, Eric. Sorry. No, okay. no, no. I was just saying another. I like the segue, actually. Uh, another hey, friend of mine. If you're talking about my butthole, I get to interrupt. I'm just saying. <laughs> another friend of mine broke his ankle last week. Uh, mountain biking. Broke his ankle, broke his heel pictures of it all over Instagram, right? So the, people don't have any issues talking about all these things, but as soon as it gets from the neck up, like everybody wants to like kind of talk about it in hushed tones. And then all the treatment modalities therefore get spoken about as like these stigmas and um, you know, people are on, uh, unfortunately, and some get addicted, but people are on painkillers for, you know, post-op for, uh, you know, having your your broken heel put back together again, which is an extremely painful. Um, yeah. yeah, but it, it's just as painful for those of us who have gone through, you know, PTSD, psychotic breaks, all these things. I'm just throwing out my my laundry list of uh, of of my own uh, uh, DSM library from from my world. Uh, and yeah, I'm not afraid to talk about it. Yeah. But many are, and Sherry, I wonder, because I'm literally, and, and I'm using Eric as someone in in sort of concept of this, but it's constant. Like, if you think about a lot of the anti-anxiety or anti-depressive drugs that are being um, prescribed right now, they could be way heavier, way bigger, and have way more side effects than any of the stuff, the so-called party drugs that we've been talking about that we use, and which, by the way, Three or four of them that I just described are actually, they have their psychotropic aspects in a fully natural form. They don't actually have to be extracted or in any way, like literally to pick it off the ground, stick it in your mouth and have an experience like this. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if, if they're part of that lack of stigmatization also needs this piece of education of like, hey, like this other drug that has this like 19 syllable lame that they keep selling to you in that stupid commercial uh, in between, you know, your Lifetime movie is actually just as big of a controlled substance of this other stuff we're talking about. Yeah, I think we've, we're real confused about what addiction means, right? Because psilocybin is you know, magic mushrooms, it's not, not addictive. Like you can, you can't really get addicted. If you sort of take it over and over at some point, you're going to kind of burn out your receptors and you're just not going to feel it anymore. So it's not, it's not a, an, an addictive, dangerous 
medicine in that way. What is so interesting though, is I think we as a culture have been content with a numbing of our pain and we've gotten real comfortable there in that baseline zone. But what is really interesting about psychedelics is, and this is um, a study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this is not the world according to Sherry. This is the, this is the nerdy girl talking again about those research papers. White papers, so, baby. White papers. White papers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, but this is published peer-reviewed research in one of the top medical journals in the U.S. Comparing psilocybin as a treatment for depression versus standard treatments. So SSRIs like your Prozac. The main difference, and the reason that I am so excited about these medicines, but the main difference, both were effective at alleviating the depression part. The challenge with an SSRI is that it alleviates both ends of the spectrum. So you feel less depression, less pain. You also feel less joy. So it kind of locks you into that baseline. And if that is the best option to keep you alive, hell yeah. Not anti-medicine at all. No, but neither are we. That's, if, and that's why I wanted to draw mm -hmm. the distinction. Great work. Yeah. Thank you. But if we have an option that eliminates the low symptoms, like can help alleviate the depression and the pain without minimizing the joy, that's a game changer in my book. Because I watched my brother go through cycles and cycles of therapy and treatment. And he was getting good treatment. Like, I, you know, I know the difference. He was... People cared about him. They were trying, but he couldn't regain his sense of joy. Like he couldn't reconnect with anything that really mattered. And he couldn't sort of sink his teeth into why he would bother to stay alive. And that I think is very dangerous. So if we can help eliminate the depression without killing the joy, I am going to sign on for that all day and all night. Hell yeah. And I think the other important part of this too is, and, and I know this, so, and please, if I'm overstepping my bounds speaking for you, just tell me to shut the hell up. But we're not saying you, you take the magic mushroom, you take the pill, go for the ride and everything is fine. This isn't, what, what what's going to happen is this is going to allow you to understand how your brain works better. You're going to work with a therapist. Like that's, I'm not literally saying like, hey, why don't you run out into the woods, eat a handful of mushrooms, you know, dance around in the rain for Make a second. Make sure you know which mushrooms you're eating. And, yes, yes, but big time, because some of them can kill you. Um, and, and, and I think that's the piece that gets lost, right? Like, and, and I think it speaks to something you said a little earlier and why I think a book like what you're coming out with right now is so important is there isn't a pill for this. There isn't a magic bullet. There isn't a magic cure. There isn't a moment where you're going to wake up and you're not going to miss your dad and your brother. That, that's just a fucking lie. It doesn't exist. But what there is, is a way to find time, space, ways to hold this. There's medical treatments physical treatments, drugs. And I think that idea of like a somatic understanding of how our body and mind works is the key to all this. And your statement earlier is very right. It's like, okay, I, I go to the ankle doctor for my ankle. I go to the eye doctor for my eyes. I go to the brain doctor. I go to the psychiatrist or the psychologist for my brain. But you know, what if the pain in my ankle and the constant pain I'm under is actually contributing to my depression, but none of these people are talking and I don't put that together. I'm treating all these things, but I'm not actually getting to, to what really needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate you making the point that like, these are not magic pills. It's not Jack and the no. Beanstalk. It's not like, take this one time, go on your merry way. It's, it's a tool that helps support a larger process. Mm -hmm. And even in the 
kind of psychedelic therapy world, there's a mantra that often gets repeated, which is that we go in and through, in and through. You don't go around, you don't go above, you don't go below, you don't get to avoid it. But if you can have a tool that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable and a guide that makes you feel a little bit brave and just this combination of things that help you go in and through whatever suffering you're holding, I think it's a lifelong journey. It's not one and done, but it feels more hopeful because there's some movement in these really deep places, but there's no magic. No, well, there is not. And as someone magic's who, in the work, magic's in the someone, work, right, yeah, Eric? As someone who takes medication and has for a very long time, working with my therapist, depending on where I am along various points in that journey, the medication gets adjusted. Right. So I'm not always on that same dosage. You're in a, a conversation. I'm in a, there's a crisis dosage. And then, right. To be able to at least get to the point where you can be stable and be able to kind of, as you were saying, start to work through it. Once you're through it, then that changes. And um, yeah, it's, there's no like put it on cruise control once, like once the crisis is over and, you know, you just sail along the highway at, and, probably more like Mark speed at hundred miles an hour. Um, and everything's, every, everything's good un, until the end of time. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the work though. Like that's, yep. that's grief's not done. There's not one drug. Like it's the lifelong commitment to continuing to be present to what's happening for you and what needs to be adjusted so that you can show up in your life. Well, I love, I love that. Uh, and it harkens to earlier episodes where I went on a long diatribe about one of my favorite poets, Robert Frost. And there's a quote in one of his poems, uh, one of my favorite poems where he, um, he's actually speaking through, it's a woman's voice. It's a wife he's talking to in the house and she's talking about how difficult their life is. And the quote is the only way is through. Hmm. And when you say that, like you have to be in, and through and this idea of this like lifelong work I, and it's funny because it's like we want to offer hope right we want to offer this optimism but then we say things like that and they're like oh jesus it's gonna be that hard and it's like it might be for a brief moment it might be that hard but the overall if you look at it in the arc it, it'll get better it'll feel better you'll you'll have more you know things will at least make a little bit more sense because you've actually spent some time to be like why do I flip out when X happens, you know? And I don't, you know, and I'm sure you probably fight this all the time as the doctor sitting across the desk when you're asking someone to do something that you know will be hugely helpful to them. And they're like, I just, I, that just sounds so hard. And you're like, you can't lie to them, right? You're like, yeah, it's gonna yeah, be hard. It it's gonna be hard. Sorry. It sucks, yeah. <laughs> Here we are, welcome to the human race. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing that's been so helpful to me in my journey with all of this, so writing is one, psychedelics is another, is, is circus, to come back to it. Because the first time that I saw a fabric suspended from the ceiling and it's like 25 feet up in the air and someone's like, you're going to climb that. And I'm like, there's no fucking way I can do that. <laughs> like, I'm not strong enough. I'm afraid of heights. I don't want to do that. That's not a good idea. That sounds crazy. <laughs> right? Why would anyone do that? But then I would see these beautiful performers and I'd be like, well, I kind of want to do that. It looks so cool. They look so powerful and beautiful. And it's, it's that sense of like hand over hand, like one motion at a time. And you don't even realize you're doing it, but 
one motion and then another one and then another one. And eventually you're at the top and then you go like, oh shit, how'd I get here? What do I do now? How do I get down? But I, I've found that my grief is so like that. It's just one, one morning. How do I face this morning? Where's my coffee today? How do I like be present to this moment? And then the next moment and then the next moment. And suddenly it's like, oh, wait, I'm moving through this. Here is me living in the midst of all of this shit and I'm okay and I'm here, but it doesn't happen in the big picture. It happens in those little details of one moment at a time. That's such a great metaphor about the hand over hand as you kind of climb up to the top. Uh, and I talk a lot in when I coach mountain biking, telling people like we can do hard things. Like we might come to an obstacle that's on the trail. It could be a rock. It could be roots. It could be maybe the first time we get to it, we just stop and look at it and acknowledge it and say, oh, that's there. The second time, you know, we make an attempt at it. Sometimes we'll get over it. Sometimes we won't. Uh, but the more times we try, at some point, we're going to move up and over that obstacle. And then the trail is going to be a little bit smoother. And then we're going to get to the next obstacle. And, and that's why, for me, I find mountain biking so closely tied to all the work that I'm doing in therapy. Because there's yeah. always going to be an obstacle out there on a trail that I haven't ridden before. And I need to figure out how to do the hard work in order to get myself up over and through that, that obstacle. But the more obstacles you encounter, the more experience you have, the more yep. you're like, okay, that I can go around, but that I have to stop, you know, the, you, yep. you just, you develop this capacity for obstacle management. <laughs> um, it sounds like there's your next book. Obstacle management as it re retains to life, grief, and all the things we're trying to figure out our way through. There we go. And Sherry, I can't thank you enough. I mean, this conversation mm -hmm. has been amazing. I look forward to reading the book. I'm sure I will grab so many wonderful things out of it. And I just, I, the thing that I love most, and this is going to sound probably over the top and a little sentimental, but the thing that I love most about listening to you speak about this is it is so clearly personal and so clearly you, but you have, it's so obvious to me that you've taken the time to grab that larger understanding of how it can help anyone. And, and I'm sure part of that is your work as a doctor working with people, but it also seems to be just who you are. I mean, even you describing that moment of leading up to, you know, being the caregiver and caretaker of all the people around you leading it to your dad's death. It, it's such a valuable lesson that yes, all of those things can be true, but we still need to be able to tap into that idea that, you know, a little girl lost her daddy and we have mm -hmm. to do that. We have to. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for that. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed hanging with you guys. Um, I am coming to Colorado oh. in October. Ooh. I'm doing an aerial performance at TEDx Breckenridge. So not Whoa. far at all. When? when? What's the date? What's the I date? I think it's October 16th. Shit. I'm in Maui. <laughs> He's in Maui. <laughs> oh, sad for you. I mean, no. and I that's, think a, I... that's a total sorry, not sorry. This, this, <laughs> I, I, mine's going to be a sorry, not sorry. I can't come sorry. to your TED Talk. <laughs> yeah, mine's going to be a sorry, not sorry, too, because I think I'm going to be on the beach in L.A. <laughs> well, whatever. Whatever. I see how it is. But well, in any event. Well, here, and you can come whenever you want. Yes. Oh, actually, the 16th? Oh. The 16th. It's a Sunday. I, when do I leave? I got to figure that out. I might, 
I might not be leaving until later. For some reason, it's not in my calendar. But anyway. so, but we can also advertise that because we we're actually yeah. Breckenridge is yeah. only what sixty miles of the crow flies Bre from us. So if, if even my driving is no indication. It's about two hours and fifteen minutes for me. Okay. For me. It's, yeah. So it's about an hour for you, Mark. No, nah, it's it's <laughs> it's definitely under two. I'll just say that. It's very close. Distance. It's very close. Yeah, we're basically two ridges away from uh, if we're going to talk like mountain folk. Um, uh, and that's amazing. I'm so glad to hear you're going to be out. Maybe here I should and... change my Maui trip. Nah, yeah, that's going to happen. Nah, I mean, <laughs> I know. And we're we're actually just... going to a concert in LA at the Greek. Um, and my wife's oh, never okay. been to the Greek, so um, I love the Greek. Get her to I the Greek. Too. Get her Get to, the, to Greek. the Greek. It won't look anything like that. I'm definitely the Russell Brand in our relationship. Um, <laughs> Yeah, get him to the Greek. Let's just prop him up in the corner. I, I just, uh, Sherry, I, um, before we wrap up here, though, I just want to make sure everyone knows where to find you, where to find the book, Dr. Sherry Walling, and the website is called? Uh, so the website for the book is called touchingtoworlds.com. And the book is, it's everywhere. It's like at Amazon, it's at the bookstore, it's at your local bookstore. So if you have a local bookstore to support, that's always cool. Um, and then I live on the internet, like I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Sherry Walling. My company and the name of my podcast is called Zen Founder. I'm very easy to stalk online. Just Perfect. enter my name and you'll find all the She just gave you permission to stalk her online. <laughs> <laughs> so Zen Founder, that's where we find like the main work that's yeah. the, the, the daily beyond the book. Yeah. All right. So zenfounder.com, touchingtoworlds.com. I can't wait to learn a little bit more about doing this. I feel like I've made some strides, but we can always have further to go, I think is the best lesson. Yeah. Eric? I take care of both of you. Thanks for having me. Oh my God. Thank you so much for being on. And I probably need to read your first book because uh, I need to learn how to keep my shit together as, uh, <laughs> as, a, it, as an entrepreneneur, so. Hey, yeah, there she goes. Product placement. I know, lots of props. I love it. And lots honestly, and both, both of those covers are gorgeous. And I, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm also, I've been working a lot on giving myself permission to just not keep my shit together. Yeah. <laughs> it, they're very different books. I, it's, I, I kind of want to go back and read the first one in light of the second one and like, I was just, it's a different book for a different purpose. I was in a different place. Yeah. So it's, it's a good book. It's really, it, it is a really good book, but the second one is definitely like, here's my heart on a yeah. platter. What just, do you think? <laughs> just still, just still bleeding and crying and beating right, right on there. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. And look, I think, and, and look, obviously it's the journey that Eric and I have chosen from survivor to thriver to be right. We want to share these real stories of what people are going through. So mm -hmm. there isn't that person sitting there thinking they're the only person that's ever gone through it and that there's no way out, right? And there's no way through. There's no way in and through. They're like, I'm in, in it, but how do I get through? And yeah. so I can't thank you enough for helping all of us on that journey in and through. And with that, I'd like to give a huge thank you to my co-host, Eric DeRosa, of course, our wonderful guest, Dr. Sherry Walling on this special episode kicking off to throw that book out to the world. Say the title again for me, Dr. Sherry. Touching Two Worlds, a guide for finding hope in the landscape of loss. And with that, I will leave us with these words, as I always do. This is Mark Fernandes from Survivor to Thriver. Let's all please be as well as we can.